Hello and welcome to the Al Atiyah Foundation podcast. My name is Stephen Cole. It gives me great pleasure to welcome Mr. Mark Antoine Almaziga to the program. Mr. Almaziga is director of IFRI's Center for Energy and Climate. Prior to that, he spent six years at the International Energy Agency, the IEA, notably as Russia and Sub-Saharan Africa program manager, where he conducted oil and gas market analysis. He's also held various other positions, such as at the Robert Schuman Foundation, where he created and conducted the Ukraine Observatory to foster dialogue and expertise on Ukraine's political, economic and social transformations. Marc Antoine, welcome to the Alatea Foundation podcast. Thank you very much, Stephen, uh, for this uh, very kind invitation and introduction. Well, to begin, let's um, provide a summary of your work, I think, at the IFRI Center for Energy and Climate Change and the Ukraine Observatory uh, at the Robert Schumann Foundation. Sure. I think um, what we are trying to do um, is uh, to basically use geopolitics and geoeconomics as the main focal point to analyze energy policies and energy market developments, both in Europe, within Europe, as uh, we are engaged in an unprecedented economic and energy transformation, uh, which aims to reach carbon neutrality by 2050 and accelerate dramatically by 2030, but also between uh, Europe and the rest of the world, that is mainly uh, with the largest uh, energy producers, consumers and uh, greenhouse gas emitters. And, and I think that makes us quite specific in the global, uh, in the global uh, setting of uh, think tanks or uh, wider institutions that work on energy and, and markets or policies. And, uh, and, and I I think that uh, with the war in Ukraine, the weaponization of energy or of, en or of everything, as many say, uh, I think we are uh, here on a on a on a very interesting uh, uh, on a very interesting pathway. Oh yes, Mark Antoine, very much so. I mean, a year on from Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the global energy landscape has changed dramatically, and the world's dependence on fossil fuel consumption, including price, resorts, volatility, uh, has come, I think, into sharp focus. And the economic disruption caused by the war has, uh, I think, amplified calls for an accelerated energy transition. You talked about accelerating in 2030, and the ripple effects have been felt acutely. Um, you recently commented the efforts against climate change have been um, hampered, severely hampered, by the conflict in Ukraine. Wh why is that? Sure, I think to start with, we have to remember that um, Gazprom and Russia uh, were providing one third of UNBN gas supplies uh, over past years. So this is tremendous. And as Russia was providing so much gas to Europe, the LNG market could be geared towards emerging economies uh, beyond, you know, the traditional importers like Japan or South Korea. So we had a chance to put more gas in the system, less coal, and to accompany the ramp up of renewables. And what happened then is that Russia started reducing its gas supplies to Europe, and which has strained immensely the energy market, 
which has basically prompted emerging economies to put more coal in the system, to put more oil in power generation, and which has prompted us in Europe to also put more gas into our electricity system and a little bit more of coal. So all in all, that was already very bad. The second aspect, which is very bad, is that we needed to count on a constructive Russia to address climate change because Russia is one of the world's largest emitters. And, and with the war and its total isolation or near total isolation, clearly the Russian government is not focused anymore on, on addressing and fighting climate change. But as you said, but as you said, Stephen, I think uh, uh, on the medium term, what we will see everywhere is two things. One is obviously an accelerated push towards renewable investments and B, uh, an increased focus on energy efficiency. And here in Europe, even uh, uh, a step beyond, which is uh, towards energy sobriety. But uh, so so I think we have to see this in two phases. So the short term is looking pretty bad, but the medium term, and we'll see hopefully an acceleration in the low carbon solutions and technologies. But of course, this comes with many, many challenges related to inflation, to the availability of resources, uh, related also uh, to the availability of skilled workforce. And of course, to the fact that then you need to bring in the flexibility technologies to ramp up grid investments, etc. So it's not going to be a, an easy road. Uh, and, and, and a road... Um, Europe is trying to ease the way with the European Green Deal. Uh, as you know, it's a package of policy initiatives trying to set the EU on the path to a green transition. Uh, and that aim, that goal of reaching climate neutrality by 2050, that seems to be a catch-all term from very many different proposals. But what are the most significant, do you think, within the deal? Well, the Green Deal indeed was was presented three years ago, and um, and since it was presented, it has undergone three unprecedented crises. Nobody would have expected, right? So the first was, <laughs> so so it's already an embattled strategy, I should say, but it's still alive, and and actually it's being reinforced. So I'll, I'll say a few words on that in a second. But the free crisis were, of course, first that you had to bring all the EU member countries on board. And that was extremely difficult because you had to, you have very different circumstances in Europe. And, uh, and so, of course, you had to convince everyone to agree with the objectives. And that was achieved. The second crisis was COVID, of course. And, and the third crisis is now the geopolitical and economic shock uh, from the war uh, that Russia wages in Ukraine. And and beyond uh, indirectly in Europe. So, so I think uh, uh, having said that, the idea to with the Green Deal um, was a clear consequence of Russia's aggression and of the need to decouple from Russian energy supplies. And if you want to decouple, well, on the short term, there is only one solution, which is to save energy and try to import more LNG liquefied natural gas. So this is what has been done. And actually Qatar played a little role in that too. But then if you if you look for the years beyond, well, then that means bringing much more renewables into the system, uh, bringing phasing out and the thermal uh, engine and moving to the electrification of transport, which has all also been acted. 
And it also means ramping up energy efficiency efforts. And it also means uh, to basically uh, develop the hydrogen economy for where it really makes sense. And so I think uh, very, very important work has been ongoing in these directions. Much more funding has been allocated. And if I look uh, into where we are now, I think um, we are uh, well on track to have actually see this acceleration. Although, of course, it remains to be seen if we can really meet the very ambitious targets that we've set for ourselves uh, for 2030. Yes. Uh, we are talking, we are talking, just to give you one number, we are talking about installing 750 gigawatts of solar and wind within uh, by 2030. So, so that's a, that's basically a factor four in terms of annual capacity deployment. So it's just tremendous. So most likely we're not going to get there, but nonetheless we'll see a very, very important acceleration. And what we still need to fix is the role of nuclear into all that. And, uh, and that is quite a, a matter of tension currently, notably between France and Germany. Indeed, uh, I'm not going to get into that one uh, at this stage, uh, but uh, there's no doubt a blockade. Um, uh, whether it's working or not uh, is uh, another question, but a blockade on Russian crude oil and refined products has been enforced, certainly in the Northern Hemisphere. Has the only effect been, though, to place a price cap on crude and refined products? And is this why Russian crudes and products sell at such a large discount to the posted prices? Well, indeed, what we are now after one year of Russia's war in Ukraine is the European Union is no more importing Russian oil, crude and products, is no more importing Russian coal, is no more importing Russian wood products, and is no more importing Russian natural gas. At least uh, the largest customers uh, have been cut off uh, from uh, supplies from Gazprom via pipelines. So the situation indeed is extraordinary. Nobody would have expected something like that to happen, A, and B, for the European Union to still be, uh, say it, uh, alive uh, after such a brutal decoupling. Now, we are uh, alive, things are working, the energy system has been extraordinarily uh, agile and has adapted and adjusted, of course, at a huge cost. And when we talk about the oil supplies, what is striking is that the idea of course, is not to prevent Russian oil from reaching global markets, because that would lead to a catastrophic situation. The idea is to reduce the rent that Russia uh, benefits from selling its oil and product abroad, so that uh, its war effort is being uh, weakened. And, uh, and I think uh, from that perspective, it, it is working because Russian oil continues to reach global markets. There is no dramatic oil supply crisis across the world. Um, and it's also working because we see that the revenues that the Russian state uh, can uh, cash in from these exports are going down. So it's not to say that you know, Putin's war effort will stop in two months because he's running out of money. No, but it's just another headache he has to face. 
And I think from that sense, it's pretty much working. Now, of course, it comes at a, at a huge benefit for, for countries like India, Turkey, China, and other emerging nations who can now benefit from discounted oil imports from Russia. And it comes at a, quite a severe cost for us in Europe uh, because uh, we have to pay more, obviously, uh, for these supplies. But nonetheless, that's the price to pay uh, if we uh, want to support Ukraine, uh, support international law, and bring back Russia to to the negotiation table and to to ultimately uh, give up its war in Ukraine. So you believe Europe is coping, and and Europe has survived the winter of twenty two um, with no major gas supply issues. Um, with stocks now high, it appears the winter of 23-24 should also be secure. Do you agree with that? Uh, and if it's true, will gas prices start to fall quickly now? Well, we uh, we are in, a, in an extraordinarily uh, good situation compared to the worst concerns we had a few months ago when we looked into this winter and we said, wow, it's going to be really, really tight. And actually what helped us was uh, the weather. Uh, it was the fact that the Chinese took much less LNG uh, compared, for example, 2021. And uh, and what helped us were the extraordinary adjustments that were made in the market by marketplaces and policymakers to bring in a lot more supplies. So now, indeed, as you said, Stephen, we are exiting the winter uh, in a few weeks with much more gas and storage compared uh, with previous years. So that's a real asset uh, for 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 2023 and for preparation of the next winter. Now the situation remains extraordinarily tight. If we are lucky, we get a good weather in summer, not too hot. Uh, we have no storms in the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, we have a, a relatively mild summer in Asia and, and all that will help us. If we are not lucky uh, and we get very, very hot summer storms uh, and, uh, and of course a, a cold winter starting early next year, well, then things will get really, really problematic. So <laughs> let's hope that El yeah. Nino and El Nina behave themselves. Uh, yeah. So. Yeah, I mean, uh, we are, and, and, and the interesting thing is, you know, there's not much you can do, but uh, what, what has to continue happening is continued very strong efforts to save energy in a hurry, to maintain all the efforts, uh, both in gas and electricity, because both are tied, of course. Yeah. And, uh, and of course, with the low prices that you now have and the kind of uh, relaxation mood everybody is in, in the market, um, this is a challenge. But, uh, but, uh, so, so so far so good, but the problems uh, in the few, next few months are not disappearing and are actually getting worse because, as you know, last year we had Russian gas until summer, uh, and this year uh, we will not have these four or five months of uh, Russian gas via pipelines. So, so that is missing in addition to last year. So it's an additional headache, right? And and if you look at gas demand, well, I think we've reached the bottom of what we can do. Um, obviously, the market has adjusted. We've seen some sharp decreases in industrial uh, demand and in the residential sector, but there's not much more um, that can happen. And so, hence the need to continue the saving policies and, and to be uh, very alert on that. I just um, switch um, to COP, uh, Marc Antoine, and I wonder whether you were 
disappointed that COP27 focused, I think, more on abatement and damage compensation than really tackling how emissions could be curbed. And do you expect COP28 to move back to more concrete measures on climate change mitigation? Yes, I think COP27 was disappointing in many regards, but however, I think it has shed some, some real good light into the realities of uh, the global environmental and climate governance, which is that, um, you know, the interests uh, between uh, the different uh, countries of the world are, are, are not aligned yet and, are, and, and we see growing tensions between the North and the South and, uh, and we see, of course, growing tension over the role of hydrocarbons. And, and there is also a sense that people consider that 1.5 degrees is out of reach, so let's focus on adaptation and just continue as we are because uh, uh, in any case, in the best case, we will not be able to stop global warming, so so it's best just to shift to adaptation. And I think, uh, indeed, Stephen, uh, from that angle, it's it's quite disappointing, but yeah. I think the COP28 that we'll see uh, uh, by year-end uh, comes in a different uh, in a different perspective because we will have a strong COP presidency, which was not the case of Egypt. Um, we will, have, I mean, the Emirates are, are, are really uh, willing to to play a, a very substantive role. Uh, they are working on their own without any outside influence. And what is most important in my view is that the COP presidency will be handled by one of the largest uh, oil and gas company in, in the in the region and in the world, which is a huge which is a huge change because to yeah. say the truth, uh, we will only be able to address climate change if uh, the oil and gas industry and if the uh, oil producers are uh, fully playing their role and are committed and, and are part of the solution. And so the only way that can happen is to have them uh, take leadership. And so I think that's a good opportunity to do so. I, I mean, some companies and countries believe climate change can be tackled within a, a business as usual model. Uh, I mean, hinting measures such as carbon capture, utilization, storage, hydrogen plants may be sufficient abatement tools. Is that consider? Is that do you think a viable approach now? No, I don't think it's viable. But in a way. Uh, in a way, no, of course it's not viable because we know that if we want to be on track for 1.5 degrees, we have to dramatically reduce uh, demand for hydrocarbons and then, of course, reduce also investments and production into hydrocarbons and move to the to the to the other low carbon technologies plus reduce energy demand. So that's and of course, uh, you know, preserved biodiversity, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So we are very far from that, but. You know, looking at this from the from the perspective of several hydrocarbon producers, well, they look in the, into the world and see growing demand for oil, growing demand for gas, and and of course that demand is not uh, growing in in the OECD countries, but it's growing in the emerging economies. And so their point is to say, look, the OECD uh, economies might be already starting to see decline in demand, etc., but the rest of the world is just on a different track. And actually, the rest of the world is no way near to starting an energy transition. It is just uh, basically diversifying its energy mix, basically adding renewables to coal, gas and oil, right? And actually, they're right. Now, the problem is the following. 
Um, if they stop there and say, OK, I'm just going to continue investing and to meet that increasing demand, I think they are just becoming part of the problem. Uh, what needs to happen is that these producers say, OK, we are going to accompany, of course, uh, this growing demand, but we are going to double down on investing and helping to develop the alternative solutions to invest basically in the renewables, um, to invest in the alternatives uh, for the transportation sector, etc. That will ultimately bring also our clients and emerging economies on the right track. And this part is missing, and this part is still missing. And uh, and I think uh, it can come now. And the other part that has been missing, but uh, but we see also their changes, is the idea that well, you know, if you have an electricity system that 100% relies on oil and gas or on coal, in addition, well, you can really double down on on diversifying that. And I think if we look at Qatar. If we look at the UAE and even Saudi Arabia, there's some important changes uh, happening there, and I think uh, and I think that's also promising from that angle. Um, uh, we've talked about Ukraine uh, uh, and the Middle East, but uh, uh, drawing upon your expertise of sub-Saharan Africa, do you think a meaningful energy transition can be achieved in the face of such an explosion of population on the continent? Well. The, the thing about uh, Sub-Saharan Africa is uh, that there is no single energy transition pathway, right? Uh, and it's actually also a, remark, uh, a side remark for the rest of the world. There will be several energy transitions. There is no magic solution for that, etc. Now, what I see is that, of course, we hear the fact that, you know, Sub-Saharan Africa is just basically one or two percent of global greenhouse gas emissions. Um, it's a, a very, very tiny contribution to the global warming we've had so far. And and that, of course, that is, is an interesting point, isn't it? They've caused very little global absolutely. warming, but are suffering from climate change. Absolutely. No, not only did they cause very little, but uh, regrettably, they are the ones that are going to be the biggest victims, right? Because uh, they are heavily exposed and have little financial means and resources to to protect themselves uh, from from these threats. So. So, of course, the situation is terrible. Now, uh, what should we do? I think I think there is an issue of money. There is an issue of de-risking investments. There is an issue of, of bringing a lot of these investments there, of ramping up skills, etc. But there is also a huge number of issues that sub-Saharan Sub African governments have to address, which is setting up a, a framework that is conducive to, invest, to investments, you know, uh, meeting rule of law requirements, having stable and transparent uh, governance, and and all that uh, is also required um, if uh, if uh, we are to to basically altogether be able to ramp up the low carbon systems there, etc. And so and so this I see missing. And so, for example, Stephen, when I hear you know the calls for large investments into into adaptation and, and emergency funding for for a number of countries well the problem is if the government system in place is is not right um i think we are just uh, you know it, it won't help tilting uh, exactly. and populations will be victims, right so we have come out of this uh, of this uh, negative circle uh, just briefly, uh, Marc Antoine, because sadly we're running out of time. Give us a, a quick view, uh, an overall viewpoint on Africa's wind and solar power development. 
I think uh, we will see something extraordinary, which is a very hybrid development. What I mean by that is you will see uh, a combination of systems that will add up notably for example in areas where you have the grids people and industries will still deploy some decentralized autonomous solutions because the grid is not reliable uh, in areas where you don't have the grid well most probably the grid will never come because of the progress of the decentralized solutions uh, at all levels and um, and then what we will see is a uh, is increasingly a major fundamental problem to come, which is uh, the debt-ridden uh, national electricity utilities, which you know have a very poor record in terms of revenue collection, hence do not invest, hence uh, cannot maintain the infrastructure, hence only uh, are able to 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 impose very high tariffs, which again convince uh, the consumers not to pay or to go off-grade, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So so this will have to be addressed. But I think we when we it's not going to be one that will be based on um, on the central network. It's going to be a hybrid one, a very decentralized uh, with multiple solutions. But the key is the key is, I think, uh, to bring in uh, investment to de-risk that investment in countries, you know, where the currencies uh, are very weak and 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 often there is no, you know, there is no no even clear understanding of who owns what in terms of land ownership, etc. So a lot of work that needs to be happened there. But overall, overall, I think, um, yes, we will see a, a boom in, in solar. Uh, we will see a boom in decentralized systems. And, uh, and, and one thing not to forget is uh, not only is there the electricity access issue, but also the clean cooking access issue, which is uh, often related. And again, here, there is a huge uh, scope for progress with new uh, electric uh, pressurized cookers, for example, who can really make a difference and are very cheap uh, to be deployed at large scale. So um, yeah, the, the challenge remains tremendous. I think we see no real progress in terms of electricity access. But again, um, but again, if uh, you know the Middle East, Europeans, others team up and, and really come up with a massive uh, support in all various forms, and local governments do their part, I think we can really uh, achieve a difference within a very short time period because of technological progress and new business models that are right now. Well, that's tremendous to end on such a positive note. Uh, Marc Antoine Almazega, you've provided us with some extraordinary insights into some important organizations and the critical areas of the world. I think particularly the outlook for Europe and Sub-Saharan Africa. The Foundation looks forward very much to speaking with you again in the future, and thank you all for listening. Be sure to keep up to date with all of the Alatea Foundation's work by following us on Twitter and YouTube. But from me, Stephen Cole and Marc Antoine, it's goodbye.